BSD Talk number 120. It's Wednesday, July 11, 2007. In the news, there's been a call for papers for the first BSD convention in Turkey. The convention will be held in October of 2007, and the call for papers is open until August. I'll put a link in the show notes to the website so you can get more information. All right, now on to the interview. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Isaac Levy. Welcome to the show. Hi. And I wanted to speak with you today for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you recently gave a talk at the New York City BSD Users Group, and I wanted to touch on that, and also maybe a little bit about yourself. So why don't we start a little bit with a brief introduction to yourself and who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, when I, I got my name, I was a community, and everyone calls me Ike. All my friends do at least. Let me see, what do I do? I'm a uh, freelance human hacker. must be the best way of describing it. I worked independently for a long time in New York City for a lot of different people. And for a job, I, I kind of provide special weapons and tactics for uh, the various people that I work for. And I use a lot of BSD in all of these jobs. And I also am a hacker, uh, so to speak, a developer. Uh, I've written a lot of kind of large-scale web applications in years past. And I've moved recently away from that kind of work. And that's probably about the best description of what I do. Let me see. I'm in New York City, and I'm always, with regard to BSD and Unix, I'm fascinated by systems. I'm fascinated by human beings. I'm fascinated by entropy and chaos and all of the interesting things that make the world around us. And I, I always uh, am fond of making comparisons to uh, city life and uh, Unix systems, just because, well, I see a lot of similarities. And not to ask you to repeat the talk you gave this past week, and the audio is available from the New York City BSD Users Group website, but could you touch a little bit on the basic topics of that discussion? Yeah, I mean, the, the basics were to give a, a history of Unix that didn't really focus on the recent history of Unix. A lot of us are a lot closer to various Unix things in the last, oh, 10, 15 years. And it was you know, really to get back to the uh, oldest historical roots of Unix because the main gist is that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and people who have come before us. And by looking at history, it's my opinion that history is incredibly useful in uh, showing us problems that have already been solved as well as being incredibly useful to show us exactly what got us where we are right now. And so from the standpoint of a developer or a systems integrator or IT manager, you know, a lot of our day-to-day lives have been lived over and over and over before. And uh, if somebody's done it better before, why not do it that way? It's kind of always my attitude. And also, the, you know, kind of fits in with the attitude of Unix in general, if you're using software, we're using, you know, making things that you can build on. So that's one of the big points. Another one is just to talk about the uh, the general philosophy and methodology of Unix, 
and to also talk about the people involved in Unix. Because, again, I'm fascinated with people. Uh, I live in a city with a lot of people, which makes me real happy. And I see Unix as being something that's, you know, not just software. Um, software and computers in themselves are kind of a dead end, and, and you know, they're, they're merely extensions of human faculties. I think Marshall McQuillan has said that real eloquently long ago. So to me, focusing on a number of the individuals involved and what, what they were going through, why they were doing what they're doing, is you know, incredibly relevant to our daily lives and the decisions we make as we build and develop and use these systems. And then another point was to really bring up Blue Sky Research and talk about the role of Bell, which in the BSDs and, and a lot of Unix, a lot of people really have a kind of you know, immediate knee-jerk bad attitude towards Bell because of USL and the lawsuits in the uh, uh, early 90s, when realistically uh, Bell and a lot of the other large research institutions at the time had more positive good to do with Unix and all of our, you know, enabling our day-to-day, the things we like about Unix that, you know, make people listen to this talk and excuse this stuff. Bell had a lot of really positive things to do with Unix. I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, why they were important and also just kind of touch on Blue Sky Research and talk about what that is about because it's not around right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who aren't aware of the long history of Unix. You can actually run into people who think that Unix is the new thing. Well, yeah, and some of that comes from the, uh, you know, the excellent rise of the internet. It can feel awful new at certain moments because, you know, when you, when you look at it, there's some slides. I'm scrolling through to find them. There's some slides where I made some graphs of numbers of internet users. In 1995, there were, what is it, 20 million Internet users and about 5.6 billion people, more than that, in the world. Now we've got about 6.4 billion people, and we've got about 1.4 billion of them using the Internet in some form or another. And these are, you know, those are census numbers or whatever. It's real difficult. To, the, the numbers could actually be argued ad nauseum. But that's not really the point. The, you know, there really relatively weren't a lot of people using the Internet in 1995, and there's ostensibly one-sixth of the world's population that's involved in one way or another now. So, you know, so, so a lot of this does feel new to a lot of people, you know, and, it's, it, and Unix feels new. And, um, and the kind of Linux mindshare and the energy that came from there leading us through the dot-com era and makes things feel new as well. There's a lot of new blood in the last 10, 15 years, and a lot of people don't know where a lot of this stuff came from. And I think it's great that there's so much new blood and so many people involved with hacking Unix stuff in one way or another. Given how long Unix has been around and the seemingly short attention span that we have in the current era, why do you think Unix has had the staying power that it has when it comes to you know the passion of the community around it? Why? Oh, wow. Well, that's a really tricky question because, you know, if, if you look at the, uh, there's, a, there's a really funny text you can find online all over the place called the Unix Haters Handbook. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the gist of the whole book is people who really hate Unix and think it's an awful thing. And there's a very funny foreword in it by Dennis Ritchie, even, um, who playfully uh, understands this. You know, it doesn't really seem like there's any terrific reason why 
you know, you, you, can, you can use as a formula to say, well, if this succeeded in this way, we can do this and it will succeed in the future. But, I, you know, I think one of the biggest successes in Unix is that from the start, by accident, it was forced to be open source before anybody called it open source. I think what Brian uh, Redman of old Belcor on that, that there was a time when nobody talked about it as open source. It just existed. So suddenly researchers not only had something that they could, they could own that was portable, but they owned it. They really owned it. They didn't have to pay into, uh, you know, the deck developer scene to learn the stuff and use it. It could be taught and used freely at universities. And it was a great moment when for the first time something was finally something that we can build upon because everyone, based on their all these different and disparate interests and agendas could all own and use. So that I think that's part of why it's lasted so long. Because every every time you download the source code or an ISO, you own it. You own it. You can keep that for the rest of your life and do whatever you want with it. And I think that's exciting to uh, creative people and to hackers and obviously some exciting people in the market. And yeah, that's kind of why I think it's been successful. It's easier to also say why it's been successful to look at other really great projects that haven't been. There's an operating system called Plato that I mentioned in the talk that, boy, I want to learn a lot more about, actually. Uh, it's really new to me, but I, I'm kind of convinced that Plato, if, if, if computing is like rock and roll, then Plato is like muddy waters. And Plato was this early uh, multi-user operating system. Um, I think it was 1962. It supported two users running two concurrent programs. So it was a big deal. But it was this mainframe program that has just about every uh, user application that we commonly use today, mail, threaded messaging systems, interactive chat sessions, and it was a, a mainframe-oriented system with these really neat plasma display terminals. It was a joint venture of University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and the uh, U.S. military. And it was supposed to be a learning tool. Now, its failure in doing seems very clearly to be that it was a closed-source op- operating system. Who is it? Um, Control Data Corporation, CDC, built most of it and owned it and ran this mainframe called Cyber that it all ran on. Uh, and it was a little bit like the LexisNexis system where you pay to have these very expensive subscriber lines run out to your place and the terminal connected to the end of them. You know, it didn't get the developer mind share. It didn't get the creative hackers. It didn't get the researchers that and, and engineers that excited because, well, Control Data Corporation owned it, you know, and it sure was neat and it sure was interesting, but, you know, like, there's not much future in it for any of the individuals involved. So, uh, you know, there's this cool quote that that Jane Jacobs, who was really instrumental in New York City in helping uh, curb a lot of really damaging development efforts that would hurt a lot of the population in the city in the 60s. There's a really cool quote that she has uh, where she states, you know, utopian ideals are uh, great for the creators, but they don't leave the uh, participants in said utopia very much room to uh, have their own agendas or ideals. And I, I totally butchered the quote. It's so much simpler the way she says it, but you get the idea. Um, 
you know, human beings really, uh, you know, even if somebody's got a really cool program or regime going on, human beings still really want and I think require in a lot of respects some kind of freedom to creatively act in their environment. And so, you know, going back to this question of why Unix succeeded, I think that's the biggest reason we all own it. We're all invested from the, from the get-go with very little investment. I mean, there are these other points of, of um, that there's tons of uh, uh, encouraging stories in the philosophy and methodology of Unix, because a lot of people don't really understand that Unix is more than just the system. You know, from the perspective of the open group, who, of course, owns the trademark Unix, it is just a name and a trademark and a piece of software. And uh, as far as its court cases have gone, they've been very famous. It's just about the source code and the software, and that's what Unix is. But the real gist of Unix, and one of the things that's really persisted down the line into the BSDs, especially, is it's most evident, most manifest in the BSDs, is Unix philosophy and methodology, uh, which can be summed up by uh, Doug McElroy really quickly with the right programs that do one thing and do it well. And that goes into this kind of modular, like, look, these are just machines. They're going to fail. Make them fail gracefully so that they don't fail eventually. So we're looking at kind of the old working roots of how things got put together in the old days, so to speak. Boy, it sheds a lot of light on what, what softwares and what software ideas fail and succeed today. It's really, really clear. The simplest things, they just tend to very quietly succeed and persist, and nobody cheers about them. Nobody gets that excited about them. And uh, to me, that stuff that nobody cheers about is some of the most exciting parts of Unix and some of the stuff that's lasted longest. So, yeah, yeah that's another reason why you know, history is important. And uh, another word is just to bring up, and I didn't talk too much about this in the talk, but let's talk about research because it's really important. It has to do with the people involved in computing. You know, like the people in the, in the earliest days, like Ken Thompson and Dennis Fritchie, you know, they were considered long hairs. And uh, that was a time when Unix was, uh, or when computing really was realm of, it was split between two kind of groups of people, uh, the long hairs and all of these freaky uh, computer science researchers who liked playing games and thought really abstractly, and then all these military guys. And, you know, the history of computing and Unix has always been this kind of relationship between academic, military, and long hairs, so to speak. And you find that's the same kind of crew today, except... Uh, when you look at Unix, when you look at who speaks at conferences, when you look at who commits really valuable source code, it's pretty much the same same cast and crew uh, with different names and a different generation. But we don't have the research environments that we used to have in the Western world. And, you know, we owe a lot to places like Bell Labs. You know, the Bell and all of these organizations came from a time that simply doesn't exist today. And there's organizations that are, for the sake of the market and increasing their their market value, talk really loudly about labs. But you know, no organization that's that's a commercial organization today that is calling themselves labs that we all know about loudly are doing anything that has anything really remotely to do with real lab research environments. Uh, you know, the Unix researchers whose jobs were to 
make new stuff. And there was no definition for what this new stuff had to be, what you know market value it had to have, what role it had to fill in the company, what money it had to make for somebody immediately. It was just pure research. And that's where all these incredible ideas came from, you know, and it felt like that like transistors came out of this at a certain point. And they sat on the shelf for a long time, to my understanding, uh, as an idea before they pulled out again. And somebody said, hey, we can solve this problem with this transistor thing that we came up with a while ago. So, you know, that kind of environment and that kind of, of, of space and room for creativity, space and room for, you know, for researchers to fail and to not make anything interesting doesn't really exist around us today. And, uh, you know, no matter how many cool new uh, web apps are put out into the market, there's no there's nobody who's really running a real lab environment in the Western world. And this has a bigger, this has to do with a lot of things outside of you. It's a lot of things having to do with Western uh, economics and Western ideology and the kind of the things that we think are are making us succeed, that kind of notion. But you know, I think they're really doing a damage and that all we're doing is living off of uh, in the Western world, living off of a kind of piggy bank of intellectual property that we've stored up from these research institutions. But the bright side, from my perspective, is that we have a different environment today as well. The computing power necessary to do valuable work doesn't cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars like it did in the 60s. You know, and I, I'm a person who really cut my teeth uh, in the 90s on Unix using machines that I found on the street in New York City, which you can find a lot of computers on the street in New York City on a trash night. You know, so there's, you know, there's all these really fun things that are kind of like my school story in the history of Unix that are like, well, okay, so this isn't ideal. This isn't the situation that we want. How are we going to get around it, you know? So you know, to me, that's another encouraging reason to talk about the history of Unix because, you know, no matter what cruddy situation you're in, you can always do something. You can always make something. You can always get around it some way and, uh, you know, eventually meet your objectives, even if those objectives are really loosely defined as just exploration or creating something. Uh, that's my little rant on that. But I, I really would like to see people holding, in especially in America, holding uh, businesses accountable for calling themselves labs and playing off of the labs of yesteryear in order to make their stock prices look better and to make them look cooler. And I, I think that's valuable. Um, I don't think, you know, tearing down these organizations is a good idea either because they, sh- they sure do do a lot of cool things for open source uh, developers. For uh, Boy, there's a, you know, for example, for, there's a lot of really great BSD people who work at Google and they sure have supported a lot of great open source development. But, you know, they, like just about everybody else right now, don't really have any real research going on. You mentioned yeah. cutting your, your teeth on Unix on boxes you found in the street. Could you talk a little bit about yeah. first exposure to Unix and what that was like? Yeah, it was it was dirty and uh, in retrospect, real real perverse. First Unix was uh, in, in recent history uh, that I can consciously say I was aware of was Unix. What was it? MK Linux, which was Apple's mock experiment Right after Steve Jobs got out of Next and was back at Apple, he said, okay, we're going to take and start this little side group for Unix stuff because it just came from Next, and that was a great, great thing. 
so these guys took the mock kernel and they needed user land. And at the time, because of BSDI and the gaining momentum of Linux, they just grabbed the most popular user land they could, and it was basically the Red Hat user land. Uh, wrapped around the mock kernel and it ran on Mac 60K processors. And that was the first Unix I ran. And uh, boy, in retrospect, it was awful. And eventually, you know, I kind of cycled through the, uh, the open Linuxes and started working in environments where it had lots and lots of Linux and lots of Red Hat. And there were all these horrifying issues that I had in my life at home and my life at work with Pudge and Mess. And the first time I installed a BSD system, which uh, I believe was NetBSD, boy, I never looked back ever since. And the reason being because of kind of you know, the clarity, the simplicity, the man pages, you know, all the all the little things that make for you know the ability to run a great system and to be able to focus on other objectives rather than you know mucking about with your system unless you really want to. But yeah, I mean, mid nineties, uh, you know, the full the height of the dot com era, which in New York was explosive and at the end of it explosive implosive. Uh, and so you could find all kinds of great hardware on the street, and you still you still can. You know, another another one for anybody who's listening to this and wants to get hardware, and they don't live somewhere like New York where you can just walk around the streets and they find stuff. Corporations they really can't donate a lot of times old hardware because of various regulations. It's cheapest for them to throw it away. So basically, you know, anybody listening to this is young or just wants to hack around more or get more stuff, become friends with people at big corporations because they will tell you when trash day is and maybe they'll give you a call to come help them take out the trash that day. And you can get a hold of a lot of great hardware that way as well. But uh, with that stated, you know, all that, all that old hardware is great stuff because well, you know, it's a problem because it sucks a lot of electricity and yada yada and it's clunky and whatnot. But boy, if you're hacking hacking out some piece of software, there's nothing like a really, really slow CPU to make you make a great piece of software. Because by the time you get it on some, you know, decent piece of uh, uh, machinery, boy, it'll fly. Were there any other topics that you wanted to talk about today? I think anybody listening kind of gets that looking at the history of Unix is, is cool, or I hope they get it that it's cool. And if you want to look at the history of Unix, there's not a lot of, there's a, there's a million books on computing, and there's not a lot in uh, computing that's, that's really timeless, but there's, there's a fistful of books, and I haven't gotten around to it, but I've got to post a bibliography to a nice book talk list. If you want to dive further into this, Peter Salas' book, uh, A Quarter Century of Unix, is a, a pretty terrific, pretty terrific book and really fun to read. And stories about the history and the details of various versions of operating systems. Oh, the stories are hysterical, and they they vary from you know in the same situation on the same topic. They they'll vary a little bit from person to person, which I, I think is terrific and funny. Um, there's disagreements on what actually happened. It's, uh, you know, it makes it really it kind of shows it's it's all really human. And uh, and it, it's not something that we can really get that legalistic about and uh, sit around and worship. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's Salas's book especially does a great job of of uh, just telling it like it is. And boy, like it is is pretty fun. The other really really neat thing that's uh, a neat thing to read that's part of my bibliography for that talk 
is the uh, 1974 paper, The Unix Time Sharing System, written by uh, Thompson and Ritchie. And the reason why I think that that paper is really, really exciting for anybody using Unix to read is that it's short, for one thing. Um, good documentation, good, good papers are usually really short. And then secondly, aside from the, the resource constraints, which are downright comical compared to what we have today in you know, our cell phones even, aside from the meager resources described, the Unix that's being described is nearly identical to what we use every day today. Um, it's the same system. And so to me, that's really, that's really, really exciting and is the thing that really brings the, the oldest history of Unix into uh, relevance today. So the uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much that's pretty much a wrap on it. Without uh, you know, we give the talk. So that and I guess the, the coolest coolest thing I can say to maybe end my what I'm saying is the cool thing about the history of Unix is that all of us are making more of it every day. I guess, I don't know, for everybody listening, keep on hacking. Have fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks, Will. I, mean, I appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate everyone here for uh, listening. And thanks for running your PSD talk. Uh, this is a great, great service. Really, really cool. I enjoy listening to it. All right. Thank you. And I maybe I'll be able to meet up with everyone at another nice bug meeting and hopefully for New York City BSD Con when that date gets nailed down. Oh, yeah, and a shout-out to anyone listening right now. Man, we need space. We need a space. We're going crazy here for space. So anybody with any leads, I guess email me, please, and I'll forward it on to the appropriate parties. Great. Well, thanks again. Thanks. All right. Ciao. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk, number 120.